Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Senator Chris Murphy about U.S. strategy in the Middle East. Then, John, Will, and I discuss what a policy of restraint might look like for the United States in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Senator Chris Murphy is a second-term U.S. Senator from Connecticut and Chair of the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and Counterterrorism. Before his election to the U.S. Senate in 2013, Senator Murphy served for three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives, and in recent years, he's established an impressive record as a thinker and writer on the Middle East. Senator Murphy, welcome to Babel. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've spoken and written about how U.S. policies in the Middle East are tied to our past and not either to our present or to our future. How would you define U.S. interests in the Middle East now and going forward? What should we decide that we really need to try to do something about? My primary worry is that we have not done a present assessment of the threats that are presented to the United States in the Middle East, nor our interests. We still believe it's 1985 when it is not. The Saudis and the Emiratis cooperate with the United States on an awful lot, but they are acting very differently today than they were 30 years ago. They are acting contrary to our interests all over the region. And so we should reorient our relationship with those countries so that we aren't empowering their bad behavior. Similarly, I think we have to look at our security footprints in the region. We spend billions of dollars putting massive amounts of troops in bases spread throughout the regions. I don't think that actually accrues to our security interests either any longer. What we want is to try to midwife a conversation about a regional security architecture in which the Iranians and the Saudis and the Emiratis aren't sort of constantly battling with each other through proxy fights. And I don't think that our current positioning in the region, whereby we are essentially giving the Saudi side whatever they need, I don't think our current disposition is actually leading to that detente, leading to that conversation happening. So I know you've had a lot of conversations with the Jordanian leadership. You like the Jordanian leadership. When I talk to Jordanian leadership, one of the things they're really preoccupied with is Iran. And I think one of the places where they're focused is right across the border in Lebanon. Lebanon's a place the Iranians, despite sanctions, have put hundreds of millions of dollars a year into supporting Hezbollah. The Gulf states have decided they're not going to support Lebanon as long as Hezbollah has the foothold that it has. How should the U.S. think about Lebanon? Is it important that we commit to Lebanon? Should we be caring about trying to minimize Iranian influence in Lebanon? Or do we say, you know what, it's another proxy battle. It doesn't really affect American livelihoods. It doesn't affect American lives. We can walk away from Lebanon. How do we apply it to Lebanon? 
I don't think we can walk away from Lebanon in part because right now it's a cold war between the Iranians and the GCC. And my worry is that if Lebanon falls apart, it will become the next Syria. It will be the preoccupation of the region and of the United States for the next 20 years and a source of great instability that may actually give rise to terrorist organizations that have designs on the United States. So I would argue that the United States should make a sizable commitment to reform in Lebanon and that we should draw a harder line with the Saudis. The Saudis have walked away, that they are deeply uncomfortable with the role that Hezbollah plays. The Saudis should come to terms with the fact that at least in the short term, Hezbollah is going to be part of the political infrastructure there. And it would be much better for the Saudis to be a partner with the United States, with the French and other countries, to try to offer the kind of economic support that might provoke political reform that would eventually allow for technocrats and non-sectarian actors to have greater influence in the government. That would lessen the influence of Hezbollah. So I think the Saudis' decision to step away, and the United States is sort of tepid involvement right now in Lebanon is an invitation for collapse and ultimately an invitation for a tremendous amount of instability that will threaten the United States. So it's tricky that on the one hand, we want to get our distance from the Saudis, but we want the Saudis to come closer to us. We want the Emiratis to come closer to us and support our priorities in Iraq, in Lebanon, the other places. We're, we're interested in having them put aside their doubts about the wisdom of our strategy and supporting our strategy, but then not giving them the kind of security that they feel they need in, in the face of what they see as a Iranian designs on the region. I just think it's time to play harder ball with the Saudis. I don't believe this argument that Saudis are going to walk away from a security alliance with the United States. They will never get from the Chinese nor the Russians what they get from the United States today. Yes, they want more. They want us to be tougher on Iran, but they don't have another potential partner like the United States. So I think it's time for us, both with the Saudis and the Emiratis, to say to them, listen, if you want us as a security partner, then we expect you to line up with our priorities on Yemen, on Lebanon. And if you're not willing to do that, then we're going to have a conversation in the United States as to whether we're going to be in business together any longer. They don't see another security partner with the capabilities that the United States has, and we should recognize that. When I talk to people in the U.S. military about the Emirati role in Yemen, it is appreciation recognition of the Emirati role in counterterrorist missions in Yemen. How do we parse out the stuff that countries do that we feel advances our interests and the things that they do that we feel undermine them. How can we disaggregate the stuff that we want them to do more of and the stuff we want them to do an awful lot less of? We have become a counterterrorism state, right? So we view so many of our partnerships through this narrow lens of special operations cooperation. So we look at what the Emiratis have done with us in Yemen over the last 10 years, and we chalk it up as a success because at the special operations level, they have been working with us to target discrete communities of bad guys, right? Whereas during that entire time, they have been perpetuating a war in Yemen that guarantees there will be space for the bad guys to continue to operate and multiply. 
So Egypt cooperates, but then they run jails that essentially birth terrorists with tens of thousands of political prisoners who weren't terrorists when they went in, but are often affiliated with these groups when they come out because of the radicalization that occurs there. The Washington view, and frankly, a view that I'm sympathetic to, is that Egypt needs to have more pluralism, more tolerance, more diversity of views. And yet I look throughout the Middle East, and in a way that I find troubling, I see a lot of popular authoritarians. That is, governments which certainly crack down on a small number of people, but which continue to enjoy the support of large parts of their population. That large parts of the population aren't looking for openness. Large parts of the population are looking for efficient government. They're looking for prosperity. They're looking for other kinds of things. As the U.S. government looks at this challenge, how should we think about the fact that for a lot of people in the Middle East, China seems like a really attractive model? That is, you have a a surveillance state that has tremendous power, but seems to deliver security and prosperity? Is that a threat to us? Is that something we ignore? Is it something we need to undermine? The attractiveness of an alliance with China, this is also due to the economic power and the economic reach of China. They come to these nations bearing substantial economic gifts, more than the United States can provide. So it is also, to me, a reason why the United States should be doing a radical reform of our foreign policy toolkit. All we have available to us right now in Egypt is public shaming and the withdrawal of military aid, whereas the Chinese will come in with much more significant economic promise than the United States can today. We should learn from the success the Chinese have had, and we should empower, whether it be USAID or the Development Finance Corporation, with the kind of, of economic assets that can be comparable to the Chinese, which right now we can't even imagine as a government. And, and that's in part because no one ever was competing with us on that playing field. We never had to staff up and resource up on economic development because we were the only game in town. Well, we're not any longer. And so it's not good enough to just offer some ships or some guns. You have to actually be able to offer real development in a way that we can't today. There's the development and economic piece, and then there's the security piece. And, and a lot of our allies in the Middle East, not just in the Gulf of Jordan and elsewhere, see Iran as a, a constant destabilizing factor. When I talk to Iranian officials, they'll say, look, we're just involved supporting democracy in democratic countries, and there are countries that like us and, and parties we support, just like you support parties. But countries in the region see Iran as a constant force of destabilization. How do you think we should be pursuing changing Iranian behavior? I have met regularly over the years with the Iranian foreign minister, and I take everything he says with a large shaker of salt. But Zarif always reminds me that his missiles are not pointed at Israel, they're pointed at Saudi Arabia. And Iran sees our massive increase in arms sales to the Saudis and Emiratis as provocative. And part of my reason why I think we should be desecuritizing our relationship with allies in the Gulf is because I think we are contributing to this massive escalation of military activity and arms buildup in the region. So I think part of the solution here is for the United States to step back and have a less militaristic footprint in the region. I think that that will be less provocative. I think it will perhaps 
create the kind of space for there to be conversations between the Iranians and the Saudis. And you see the grassroots of those conversations already happening, right? You see some pretty important beginnings of talks between the Iranians and the Saudis. And if we were to make sort of commitments about the limit of our military ambitions in the region, I think that would certainly help. Obviously, we can talk about the JCPOA, but I think that having some successful long-term diplomatic agreements between the United States and the Iranians will help build confidence for other diplomatic arrangements, formal and informal, to be entered into that perhaps lower the temperature in the region. These are all, I think, important preconditions to be able to address what is a very real concern about the malevolent destabilizing behavior of Iran in the region. Is there a role for deterrence or is deterrence just lead us down the pathway of the Iranians using asymmetric forces to undermine us and it it just keeps wrapping us in? What role should we think about military capacity, both ours and, and others, as we think about shaping the choices Iran makes? What is the extent of U.S. interests in the region? How much does it matter to the United States as to what share of power Iran and Saudi Arabia have in the region 10 or 20 years from now? We act as if that question is existential to the United States. Not sure that it is. Not saying we don't have an interest in it. But if you're positing a question as to whether we should be providing security guarantees big enough in order to provide deterrence against the Iranians, for instance, creating red lines about what they can and cannot do in a place like Lebanon. I don't necessarily know that that's commensurate with our interests in the regions. We have an interest in keeping the Iranians at bay. We have an interest in continuing to work with our partners. But I don't know that it is such a significant interest that we should be dramatically increasing the security presence of the United States in the region. There's going to be a fight between the Saudis and the Iranians for a long time. There are other things that matter more to the United States right now than who wins that contest. How concerned are you about China in the Middle East as the chairman of the Middle East subcommittee, Center for Foreign Relations? What should we be worried about and what should we not worry about? As a frame, I foresee the fight between Chinese-style autocracy and American-style democracy as the defining battle of the next 100 years. I don't want to underestimate the threat that I believe the Chinese present to the United States and our way of life. I think it's, it is perhaps existential. At the same time, I'm not sure I worry about the Chinese in the Middle East in the same way that I worry about the Chinese in Europe, because we're not talking about democracies by and large in the Middle East. We're not talking about the Chinese undermining the participatory rights of individuals. I also don't think the Chinese, at least in the next 20 years, have the kind of military hardware necessary to pry away our security allies from the United States. I also think China has largely gotten a free ride in the region. They need the oil more than the United States does, but it's been sort of our military that has guaranteed the relatively free flow of oil out of the Middle East, much of it now going to China, not to the United States. So query whether we should be so antithetical to China having to expend a little additional dollar in the region in order to make sure that they get the oil that they need. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be worried about China's influence in the region, but I probably worry much more about 
um, Chinese authoritarianism creeping into Eastern Europe and the Balkans than I do in the Middle East. When I talk to U.S. allies and partners, the South Koreans, the Japanese, they're extremely concerned with the U.S. giving China more space in the Middle East for fear that the U.S. rebalancing out of the Middle East actually weakens the U.S. in East Asia because it gives China power over South Korea, over Japan, which is for the foreseeable future, is going to be very reliant on the Middle East for oil and gas. What matters to the most important countries in the region with respect to oil and energy export is security partnership. And again, I understand what the Chinese are doing with drone technology in the UAE, and I understand what they're doing with missile technology in Saudi Arabia, but those partnerships and those capabilities are still on the margin. Given the threat that our partners in the Middle East believe is presented to them by Iran, I don't think they're willing to walk away from the United States and get all of their security guarantee from the Chinese. The Chinese also aren't interested in that as well. Chinese sort of love where it stands now, which is that the United States provides the security guarantee, and then they can provide a little security assistance on the margins and economic partnerships in order to get what they need. That comes at much lower cost to the Chinese than it does to the United States. And they can be on both sides of the GCC-Iranian rivalry. Right, right. They don't have to make a choice because they're not in the security business. And so right now, we are demanded by the Saudis and the Emiratis to be on their side 100% of the time. The Chinese aren't. Just query whether if the Chinese sort of had to get a bit more involved on the security side, whether they would get hung up by many of the same sort of Hobbesian choices that the United States are faced with. How did you get into this business? How did you get interested in the Middle East? I didn't see it much on your resume, but but you've taken a very prominent role in, in a lot of the big and hard questions. How did this start? It started when I ran for Congress as an opponent of the Iraq War. And I came to Congress, but I became uncomfortable with my position, which was a deep skepticism of U.S. military involvement overseas. And I saw my party starting to become a bit more isolationist in the wake of the Iraq war, making the claim that it was time for the United States to pack up and come home. And that didn't seem to be the right answer, given the real security threats that still existed to the United States, given the nature of the global economy, given the problems that are facing the United States, like climate change, that didn't seem to have any solution other than an international one. So I challenged myself at the end of my time in the House and the beginning of my time in the Senate to sort of come up with this answer. I wasn't okay with sort of my foreign policy advocacy beginning and ending, arguing for the end of the war in Iraq and the end of the war in Afghanistan. It didn't seem intellectually defensible. And so I just went on a course of study and a course of learning. And what I learned really disturbed me. I guess the more that I dug in to the way in which the U.S. balances military funding versus non-military funding in our foreign policy toolkit, it looked like a recipe to fail. It looked like we had made a massive mistake, especially in the face of the Russians and the Chinese scaling up all of their non-military tools that can influence friends and adversaries. So I just became more passionate about that rebalance. And as I studied our footprint in the Middle East, I just couldn't understand why we were so reliant on an association with the Gulf states, given how many ways they were undermining our interests. It didn't make sense to me how overly securitized we were there. So it was a study that came out of my discomfort 
about a more limited foreign policy vision I had as a new member of Congress. And it has now birthed what I hope is a impactful voice on these matters in the region. So you've talked a lot about what we should do less of. As you look forward, what should President Biden be doing a lot more of in the Middle East that the administration is not doing? So let me just defend restraint. I don't understand the, your question to mean that we always have to be sort of substituting and adding in equal measure. I think sometimes there are reasons for the United States to play less of a role. I wrote a piece for the New York Times years ago arguing as to why the United States should have never entered the Syrian war and how restraint, a decision to do less, actually would have led to peace earlier in Syria than the half measures that we engaged in. So I always want to be very comfortable saying that there doesn't have to be a substitute for disengagement. But yes, there are things we should be doing more of in the region. And again, I'll use Lebanon as the example. Our primary line of participation with Lebanon today is on the military side, but we should be able to offer Lebanon much more than we are today with respect to help to manage their refugees, economic support to help them power out of this crisis. But we can't imagine that because we're spending 10 times as much money on an annual basis on military assistance as we are on economic development and refugee assistance. But if we did have a significant pot of money to spend there, then we could be much more influential in trying to steer the course of events towards reform. But what we have to offer there is just not good enough to get the elites in Lebanon to give up this pyramid scheme that they have concocted that is falling apart as we speak. And that's not a terribly sophisticated answer, but I do think there are places in the Middle East that would like more than what we offer right now, which is by and large security support. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thanks, John. Next, John, Will, and I discussed what a U.S. policy of restraint might look like in the Middle East. So Senator Murphy is a prominent voice calling for more restraint in U.S. interventions in the Middle East, which is something a lot of Americans favor after the failures in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, and elsewhere. How fundamental a shift would this be for U.S. strategy in the Middle East? Have recent U.S. administrations trialed elements of a policy of restraint already, or would it be a completely new way of engaging with the region? As you suggest, the U.S. has been following a policy of much greater restraint, arguably not just from the the Trump administration, not for the Obama administration, but from the last years of the Bush administration. The policy of overreaching was in many ways a response to 9-11, which was so profoundly disorienting experience for the United States. In reality, U.S. foreign policy has generally been a policy of restraint. And when it's not been a policy of restraint, the U.S. has gotten into trouble. It's not perceived that way overseas, but I think in, in terms of committing forces to serious military action, the U.S. doesn't do it very often. And when it's done it, it's not been wholly successful. And that tends to curb what the U.S. is willing to do in the future. It might be helpful as well to define a bit on what we mean by restraint, because I think there are slightly different understandings of it, which often get rolled up together into restraint. Clearly, a part of it is dedicating fewer military resources to the region. But I think some people would also view restraint as not using economic tools of 
coercion, not using sanctions to the same degree. And then I think some people might say it's trading the military engagement for diplomatic and economic engagement, whereas others might say it's about just doing less of of everything and saying that a whole region doesn't matter so much. So restraint is, is more about pulling out, although I'm not sure that that's what everyone who's calling for restraint is asking for. Will, you just kind of mentioned there that sometimes it can be a trade-off. What are the trade-offs for the United States if it were to adopt this policy of much greater restraint? What are some of the biggest risks that it might face? One of the key aspects of US strategy in the Middle East has been to try and maintain a balance of power between the different states in the region. That's been by militarily supporting Arab Gulf states and helping support them against Iran. So I suppose one danger could be if this balance is set off, could there be a situation in which Iran is much more dominant in the region and expands its interventions much more widely? That might not mean in Saudi Arabia or the UAE itself, but it might be more on the periphery. And that I think there could be less predictability in terms of how how Iran might intervene in the region. I think one assumption that's behind restraint is that by reducing US interventions in the region, it will force regional powers to come together and find consensus among themselves about what a sort of acceptable balance of power is. We should probably be a bit cautious about that assumption and test it. Is it necessarily the case that not having the US there will push adversaries in the region closer together? Could it actually encourage them to be even more adversarial and to have much less stability in the region? And I think that is a trade-off, is sort of this predictability might be hard to find. The US has more leverage because so many countries in the region, including Iran, see the U.S. as central to their national security interests and to their economic interests. As the U.S. becomes more peripheral, the U.S. has less leverage across the spectrum of things the U.S. wants. That's not to say that that that's not the right thing to do, but it is to say that there is a trade-off. I think another trade-off is looking at the weaker U.S. partners, the Syrian democratic forces in Syria, are extremely reliant on a U.S. presence there. And if the U.S. were to exercise restraint in Syria, which I think many advocates of restraint would view as pulling out of Syria, then I think that could have a devastating impact on on them. So the actors in the region who are more able to weather that kind of disruption, for whom it could be existential. Speaking about weathering, Um, policy of restraint in the Middle East. John, you mentioned that U.S. allies in East Asia are strongly opposed to China playing a greater role in the Middle East. How would other U.S. partners and allies respond? The United States has gained tremendous credibility and I think leverage in the world, certainly among its allies and partners, because it acts in ways that aren't directly self-interested. The U.S. has talked about defending clearly defined systems of rules, clearly defined patterns of behavior, which don't only benefit the United States, but which benefit lots and lots of countries. China has been much more interested in advancing patterns that help China. And China, when it deals with every country except the United States, is the stronger power. If countries have to negotiate everything, 
if countries have to deal with uncertainty about how the rules will be interpreted, if, if there aren't rules about a number of things, that increases the transaction costs. It increases risk. It increases uncertainty. The world's a, a somewhat different place. I've met a number of Middle Eastern leaders who have been in Washington in recent weeks. And one of the things that they have said is what a relief it is. They feel the United States is back. They feel the United States is back enforcing rules, acting in predictable ways, and inducing others to act in predictable ways. At the same time, I think they wonder how long the U.S. is back for. Is the U.S. permanently back or is this a transient moment? Do they have to hedge against the U.S. abandoning a global role? If the U.S. either abandons its global role or only periodically enforces its global role, that's a very different role for U.S. partners and allies. And again, it's a world in which I think transaction costs are higher for everybody. Although you could argue that from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. may save some money periodically, but at some points the cost of the United States will increase as it increases with everybody. So Will kind of touched in this on his first answer, but a policy of restraint is not the same as a policy of complete U.S. withdrawal from the Middle East. As we heard from Senator Murphy, he favors increased U.S. engagement in Lebanon at the moment. How important is it for the United States to be able to telegraph clearly what its strategy is in the Middle East, including where and when it's willing to engage and where it's not willing to engage? So I think this gets at what John was just talking about in terms of U.S. allies and partners. I think one of the great aspects of U.S. power over recent decades has been its ability to bring together these broad coalitions of actors to pursue common interests. And I think it's much harder for US allies and partners to know how they can be helpful in that regard and to know where they can best contribute to these broad coalitions if a US strategy is unclear in the region. Part of, of the benefit of having a clearly defined strategy is that allies know how they can be helpful. Of course, if you also have clear red lines, a dangerous word to use when talking about the Middle East, a loaded word at least, but if you do have red lines, that theoretically is then able to help shape adversaries' actions and shape how they balance the benefits or the risks of taking certain paths. So if you do have very clearly defined red lines and limits on US strategy, then I think you lose a degree of flexibility. And I think the US loses some of the ability to pursue different options in certain scenarios. I think that's partly what we saw in Syria with the chemical weapons. And of course, the Obama administration chose not to retaliate with strikes against the Syrian regime immediately after that and not to enforce red lines after the use of chemical weapons. But I mean, you could say by having a less clear strategy that wouldn't have had as devastating an impact as it had on sort of US credibility in Syria if those red lines had never been established in the first place. So I think there's some benefit in a sort of strategic ambiguity. So I think Will's captured it perfectly. On the one hand, you want people to have a sense for U.S. priorities so they can be helpful. You also want to maintain a sense of dynamism, a sense of options, so you can change. You don't want to be part of the furniture where everybody's running around and capitalizing on what they know you'll do, and you get locked in. 
where that balance is between helping your friends help you, having a sense of where you're trying to go, but not to be locked into a straitjacket of a policy where you're the only one who doesn't have freedom of action, I think is the choice that all policymakers have to find a way to resolve. As we think about the U.S. policy of restraint, would the United States need to develop new tools or partnerships to facilitate a shift to restraint in the region? If your baseline is the United States in 2003, the U.S. has adopted a firm policy of restraint. If your baseline is the U.S. approach to the Middle East in 1987, the U.S. has a policy of wild abandon. The reality is that we're going to have to figure out what are our priorities, what are the tools that we have at our disposal, how can we bring others to advance our interests. I mean, all these things are serious problems. Part of the the appeal of a policy of restraint is that it looks at a baseline that's the wrong baseline. There certainly is a change in strategy that arises from changing global energy patterns, and that's going to continue to change. And the U.S. is going to have to have a security policy that deals with that reality. But that's not to say the U.S. should pull out of the Middle East. That's not to say the U.S. should completely shift its alliances. It should conform its policy to U.S. interests, capabilities, and global interests, which are dynamic. And our policy in the Middle East should be as dynamic as it is everywhere else. The Biden administration is committed to developing non-military tools out of a sense that the counterterrorism fight has unbalanced U.S. policy and made it much more kinetic than it should be and much less diplomatic, much less statecraft than there should be. And I think that rebalance is correct. But I don't think you can walk away from the Middle East for the next several decades. And I don't think the U.S. is going to walk away from the Middle East for the next several decades. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.